So we're beginning in the book of uh, 1 John chapter 4 on the second half of that chapter. Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. Now, I don't know if you've noticed as we're going through this book, but you could, I don't know if you could say legitimately say this or not, but it would seem that John is a little hung up on the word agape. It's the uh, fourth, and in many people's opinion, the highest form of love described by the Greek verb agape. And uh, some people say agape, but I learned to say it agape. Uh, And some will tell you it is the highest form of love. Uh, And I I think I agree with that. 31 times in this book, and I, I forgot, I looked it up, but I didn't write it down. I think it was 300 or more times this word appears in the Bible. Uh, Some will tell you it's the highest form of love. They will describe it as a completion of love, a perfect love, God's love, giving love, sacrificial love, other love, anything that implies I'm loving the object of my love with more intent and purpose than I love myself. So it's the kind of love that says, I'm putting the person I love ahead of myself. It's a sacrificial love. And it's possible, at least if my memory is correct, that the Greeks did not have as high a view of the word agape as we do now. But it's certain that Jesus' use of this word in the New Testament redefined it for us. So whereas you might read, you might get involved in studying classical Greek, you may find that the word agape doesn't have this intense of a meaning or this sacrificial of a meaning. It's clear that in Jesus' use of the word, it does imply sacrifice. When you look at John 3.16, very clearly he said, for God so loved the world that he gave. Agape always gives. All right, it never takes. That's the point. For God so loved the world that he gave. And the definition of agape is a God who loved a fallen world so much that he gave his only son to take their sin that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, A.T. Robertson, a Greek scholar of the past century, said that this is the noble word so commonly used in the gospel. It is the highest form of love. And he's speaking of it as it's used in the New Testament. Ever since Jesus, we've associated this word with giving of oneself. And when we talk about loving our spouse or loving our partner, this is the kind of love that we're talking about. The kind of love that puts our partner first. Twelve times in 1 John, we're told that we should agape our brothers. Now again, as I can back, if I can back up a little bit to previous messages, brothers means brothers or sisters in Christ. When the Greeks, when the when they used a word, when they addressed an audience, in Jesus's day, in Aramaic was their common language, not Greek. But we believe that the disciples actually wrote wrote in Greek. Uh, but when they used the word brothers, when they were speaking to a mixed audience, they were speaking to everyone. Nowadays, we would say brothers and sisters because the sisters will get mad at you if you don't say and sisters. But in those days, it was offensive to address the women in the congregation. So you address the brothers, and it included the sisters. So don't feel left out in this passage. See, 12 times we are told that we should agape our brothers. 
Now, the context of that, as I said the last time, I believe, is brothers and sisters in Christ. Whereas the word brothers is often used of the human race or of the people of Israel or of fellow Christians in this context, I believe he's talking about fellow Christians. I could easily be proven wrong, but I haven't been yet. All right. Now, in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about a vine. And he talks that we're the branches and, and he is the vine. And we have to remain in contact with him in order to keep from drying out. Well, the point that I'm trying to make is if we are the branches and if Jesus is that root, uh, if Jesus is that branch that we that that uh, trunk, if you will, there's not really a trunk on a great, great vine. If Jesus is that root, then the sap is agape. And you know the sap is flowing when in your heart for the first time as a believer, you start to notice a love for someone that you haven't noticed before on a level that you've never experienced. Now, John writes in the same verse that we've just been looking at, for love is of God, for love is of God. And the word there is ek and ek is out for love is out of. In other words, God is the source of that love. So if you're marrying someone who's not a born-again believer, who's not connected to the root of Jesus Christ, who does not have the, the sap of agape flowing through them, you're marrying someone who's incapable of loving you on the level that God requires for a marriage to work. I hope you understand that. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit's sap that proves we are in fact connected to the root. Now, this happens irregularly as a new Christian, but it happens more and more as we go along. People that we normally would take offense at or things that we would normally find difficult to do, we now find easier to accept, easier to love, and easier to care for people that we would normally we would normally not not quote unquote love. I, I don't like to use the word love because when we say I love that guy when I met him, it's like we, we think of a sappy feeling or we think of a sexual feeling, but it's neither. It's a desire to put their needs above your own. And we find in our heart that when God reaches out through us to others, a desire to help them on a level that we've never experienced before. This sap produces all kinds of fruit, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, Against such there is no law. Now, Paul's making a legal argument, so I could have left that last phrase off. But you'll notice here the fruit singular, the fruit singular of the Spirit, capital S, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. The first is love. The first evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is love. The first evidence is agape love. It is the fruit of the Spirit that produces these Fruits, it's fruit singular, See, it's one thing. And the reason it's one thing is because what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and mine, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to say this way, another commentator said it, is not giving you love. The Holy Spirit is not giving you peace or long-suffering or gentleness or goodness. He's not giving you that. The Holy Spirit is giving you Christ. And as Christ flows through us, we discover Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, 
See, what, what we get when we get the Holy Spirit is the character of Christ. And through the character of Christ, these fruits manifest themselves. Agape love is the first of fruit that shows up and proves that we belong to God. And everyone that loveth, again, every time he uses this word, it's the Greek word agape. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. And he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, the point is relatively simple, and I know I'm belaboring it, so I apologize for that. But the lost world cannot experience the love of God. The lost world is not in a position where they can experience the love of God. There's a barrier between them and God that God cannot bridge and they cannot bridge. There's a partition between them. But what they can experience is God's love through you. And the only experience they will discover of God's love is you loving them through the power of God. Now, I've told you many times that, that I, I, I think of the young woman. I don't even know how old she was, late teens, early 20s. She was actually with two others, a, a male and another female. I, I assume they all went to the same church witnessing in, in New Orleans the day before I left for Vietnam. And they're out there at 2 o'clock in the morning witnessing. They didn't win me to Christ. But they expressed a concern for me that sticks to me this day, 50 years later. It touched me that they would risk their lives on Bourbon Street to witness the total strangers. And I look forward to meeting her one day. Of course, God is going to have to, first of all, heal my brain so I'll even know who she was. Or we're going to have to have name tags in heaven one way or the other. But uh, I look forward to meeting her that day and tell her how much it meant to me when she said those words. And all she said to me was, oh, you really need Christ. She had invited me to a revival service. I couldn't go. I was getting on an airplane at 7 o'clock the next morning, flying for 27 hours to go halfway around the world. I couldn't do that. She said, oh, you really need Christ. Those words have stuck with me for 50 years. And it's because it wasn't just her speaking them. You know, sometimes we think when we say something to someone, it's so weak or it's so inefficient, doesn't matter. What matters is whether the Holy Spirit is speaking them through us. Speak your heart and just leave it to God. That's all we can do. Unless we love the lost world, they will never experience the love of God. This is the point. This is the whole point of 1 John. Now, 1 John is written to help Christians mature. That's what this is all about. You want to grow? Start loving people through the power of God. And the way this works is you find someone you can't stand. You run into somebody that just annoys the dickens right out of you or somebody you don't want to help, and you just say, Lord, this person drives me crazy. Help me to love them. And let God bring a concern through you for a person that you normally wouldn't even think of liking. Now, in this was manifested, John writes, and I know he's very redundant in this. I, I, I don't know any of you that... I don't know if any of you watch the news very much, but Jen Psaki is always circling back to things. <laughs> Every time I read this passage, I think, John, you keep circling back to the same message. And this was manifested. Now, the word manifest means it was like in a closet. It was hidden. It was under a bushel. It was under a blanket. And then it was brought out in the open. So in this was brought out in the open, was demonstrated, was exposed the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. 
Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Notice what came first. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross is God's highest manifestation of his love for us. It was manifested. It was brought out and shown to us. The reason we don't doubt God's love for us is the cross. The cross, you know, you, you really, the cross is a, me- a horrible and disgusting method of execution. And yet for us, it, for us, it is a declaration of God's love for us that his son was willing to endure that on our behalf. It is the proof of God's love for us. You know, if you were an Old Testament Jew, you would have every reason in the world to wonder if God truly loved you. I mean, you, you know, you heard Abraham that he was a chosen people and they were going to be multiplied like the stars of the heaven. And you heard these old prophecies, but you got to keep in mind, and I was thinking about that while we watched The Chosen the other day. I was thinking, you know, they didn't have a Bible. Now, this is hymnal, I know, but pretend it's a Bible. They didn't have a Bible. So when Jesus said stuff, they couldn't go back to Old Testament prophecies and look up what was going on. Now, when you think about it, it's only, you see these guys struggling, that one where they're struggling around the fire trying to figure out what, what's going on. I, I don't even understand what's going on. They, didn't, they couldn't go back and read Isaiah. They couldn't highlight all the passages about the Messiah and put them all together the way they couldn't search them on the Internet. They couldn't do any of that. How much harder it would be for them to just, of what prophecies they remember and try to put together what they learned in Sunday school. They're back there racking their brains of what they learned in Sunday school. Of course, they went to Hebrew school, so it was really all day of the week. Uh, but still... If they couldn't remember it, they wouldn't have it, you know. They didn't have it. And then you think about their history. You think about 430 years of slaves in Egypt, and then you think about the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities and conquered by Greece and then conquered by Rome. You know, and that's up to the disciples. Today you go on further and you think of Russia and Germany and all these other countries that have persecuted Israel, and you ask yourself, how could a Jew possibly know that God loves them when, you re- when they reject the fact that God's Son died on a cross for them? But the arrival of Jesus and his voluntary death on that cross for us is eternal proof of God's love. And this is important. Now, we may go through some very difficult times in the future. We don't know what the future holds. Now, I'm, I'm pre-trib rapture. I'm dispensational. I believe that before the tribulation, Jesus is going to come back in the clouds. I believe he's going to call out his church. And we'll be out of here. But I can't tell you what's going to happen between then and now. I don't know. And regardless of how bad things get, we know that we have a cross to count on. We can count on God's love. I often look at these, you know, these movies, uh, these shows and uh, about the Middle Ages, and they, they always have, it seems like every room they go in, they've got a cross hanging up. And, and you know, oftentimes terrible things are happening. And... Uh, I've often kind of written that off in my mind. Oh, that's just a Catholic thing. They've got to have a cross in every room, you know. Uh, but as I thought about it a little bit, I thought, you know, if, if you're facing the Black Plague or COVID-19 or you're facing, you know, uh, worlds at war, having the presence of the cross, regardless of what's going on in your life, is in fact a reminder of God's love for you, if you let it be. You know, we're all, if Jesus tarries, we're all going to face physical death, every one of us. And from what I can observe, it doesn't look pleasant. 
And yet the cross is a constant reminder of whatever's going on in our life. God loves us. That we are, in fact, objects of God's fathomless love. Now, John's argument is out of that point. The fact that we are objects of God's endless love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This is the point, of course. Why then should we love fellow believers? Why? Because this brother or this sister sitting next to us is an object of God's love. And if he loves them so much, it's our responsibility to love them as well. This is the point. We don't love them because we cherish them. We love them because he cherishes them. To not love them is to snub our nose at what God, what God loves. Now, you know, this came to my mind one morning. I think it was a dream. I think as I'm getting older, my mind's going back to my childhood. And I happened to think of this little carving chisel. And I was trying to see the name on it, but I can't read it. I believe it was a Buck. Yeah, it is. It does say Buck Brothers. Now, I don't know if Buck Brothers is the same organization as the one that make Buck Knives, but I think it is. I think after the brothers passed on, uh, the knife company went on it, just be called Buck Knives. And they still make chisels and carving tools. And this, this set here, this, this gouge was out of my father's collection of chisels. And I, I just woke up one morning thinking about this, and I, I hope the Holy Spirit brought this to mind. Otherwise, I'm just completely wasting your time. Um, I hope not. But you'll, you'll notice this one has a white stripe around it. I've got the whole set now that my dad died. Dad died 50 years ago, uh, 49 to be precise, but dad died 50 years ago. But he had this cherished set of buck carving tools which I have rarely put to use. He used to love to carve, and he, he did a lot of reproductions of antiques with ball and claw feet and, and ornate skirts and stuff on the furniture. And I, I actually worked my way up to a ball and claw foot and a hand dovetail, and that's about as far as I got. So I really never put these to use. I was thinking about that this morning. I ought to put this set together and clean it up and sell it to someone who will actually use it the way it should be used. Because he was, Dad was really proud of this set. And the problem was, I, w I was in the shop all day long. I was a little kid. And he was only able to work there on weekends. Oh. So I was able to get at his tools. Now, if you're, you know, six years old or eight years old or nine years old, Having a, you know, a very expensive carving tool around is a great way to open a can of paint. You know, or, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what I was doing. Probably digging in the dirt. Anyway, it got to a point where, it got to a point where Dad would separate some tools out and he'd paint a white stripe around them. And I had hand saws and hammers and chisels and stuff and some of his carving tools that he actually painted a white stripe around, which meant I could use them without penalty of death. Uh, and uh, so when he did that, when he did that, I thought at the time that he was encouraging me in my woodworking career. I realized in the back of my mind that he was protecting himself from going insane and killing me. Uh, but uh, I really thought it was nice that he was encouraging me. And as I was studying this passage of scripture, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. It kind of struck me that I missed the whole point of dad's chisels. I didn't protect them because I didn't value them. I had no reason to value them. I had no experience in woodworking. I had no experience in carving. I'd never used one. In fact, probably still can't get this stupid thing as sharp as he could get it. Uh, I never valued it. 
but I should have valued it because he valued it. See, I missed the whole thing. I, I took the presence of this stripe as something about me. See, Dad loves me. Dad cared enough for me to do this for me, but I never focused on the fact that Dad had to do this. I should have been embarrassed by that. I should have, I, I should have recognized his love. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but did you ever wonder if there's some tools, or in our case, some people, that God has separated from us because we can't be trusted around them? I should have been able to just take all his tools and look at them with awe and say, these are my dad's carving tools, and he loves them so much, I'm not going to touch them. I'm not going to open paint cans with them. You know, I should have done that, but I didn't. It was all about me. That's the difference between lost and saved. When you're lost, it's all about you. But after a while, you start to realize it's actually about him too. I should have respected them enough. I should have loved that person enough, even though I don't like them, because he loved them. That's the point John's making in this chapter. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but there's probably people he's afraid to bring into our life because we're untrustworthy. There are chisels I wasn't allowed in my life because I was untrustworthy. I see that now. I didn't see it before. I think we should all pray that God would make us more trustworthy. That he could put us around the people he wants us to love and not be worried about what we're going to do when we get near them, you see. I wonder if there are people that God loves that he has to protect from me. I hope not. I hope not. I hope he can put me around anyone and I would love them because I know he loves them. That's, of course, the point of this whole chapter. And, and, and as I thought about it, I was listening to as I was riding nowhere on my stationary bike. I don't know how you can go half a mile and you don't move at all. But uh, right, I was listening to Dr. Jeremiah talking about the chain of God's love. And he used it, a passage out of Romans. And it brought to mind this passage in Ephesians that I wanted to share with you. Blessed, uh, you know, God, the point the point of this passage that I want you to see is God's love for us is not just a passing fancy. It's just not something that he did for a while and he's going to change his mind on. And that's what this passage is about. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Now, there's a whole sermon in that, but the point is you got everything you needed from God. I love where Jesus is talking to Simon the Zealot and says, I didn't call my people because they could bring something to the group. I called my people because I love them. It's not what we bring to Christ. It's what he brings to us, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Now look at this, as Dr. Jeremiah called it, chain of custody. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us, marked out a path unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. Really, dia in the Greek could be through, and I really prefer the word through. Adoption of children through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise and glory of his grace, whereof he hath made us accepted. Uh, in Romans, John, I'm sorry, Paul used the word justified. He had made us accepted in the beloved. He justified us. All right. 
Verse 7, in whom we have redemption. He bought us back from sin. He paid the penalty for our sins on that cross and made it possible that we could once again come in His presence. Even though we'd sold ourselves into slavery, He went back to earth and bought us back. In whom we have redemption. We are redeemed. Just like redeeming a Coke bottle. Except we cost a whole lot more than a nickel. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. According to the riches of grace, whereth He hath abounded toward us in wisdom, and prudence, and having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure with the purposed in himself. Nothing we did. There's nothing we've done in all of this passage. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. Now, that's hard to put all together, I know, so I just took the highlighted portions and I put it in a slide. Chosen before the foundation of the world, that's eternity past. Predestinated unto adoption, that's the path he marked out for you and me. All right? We're predestined to be adopted. That's the path. Accepted in the beloved, that's, that's Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's justification. Redeemed through his, through his blood, that's the blood of Jesus Christ that paid the price. Receiving the forgiveness of sin and a future together in heaven. That is eternal life. That's the chain, the unbroken chain from eternity past to eternity future that Dr. Jeremiah was talking about. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, that God the Father and Jesus the Son started with us before he founded the world, before the foundation of the world. And his plan carries us all the way through to eternity future. That's the promise, the eternal life, that he'll gather us together in one. Now, just six closing facts, uh, and each of these could easily become a lesson, but the way he lined them up so quickly, it was almost like he was just summarizing. So I'm attempting to do what I think John was doing, and that is summarize six points. One is allowing God to love others through us perfects us. The word, when, when you read the word perfect, Teleao in the Greek, it means maturity, is brought to completion or fulfillment or completed. It's the idea of a green apple turning red or a green tomato ripening. It's the idea of bringing fruit to maturity, see. So allowing God to love others through us, and I'm just using the one grace of love, the one spiritual gift, all of them apply. Allowing God to develop your patience and your meekness. Uh, all seven of those gifts, allowing God to work them through them, perfects us. It brings us to maturity. No man hath seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is brought to maturity in us. It is perfected in us. It's not perfect in the sense that we use the English term perfect. It's perfect in the sense of being well. We use the word when you bite into that perfect ear of corn, corn that was just picked, and it was just right, and those little kernels explode in your mouth, and someone says to you, how is the corn? And you go, it's perfect. You know, that's, that's what the word means. It's not, doesn't mean there's not a worm hanging off the other end. It just, we, we all have worms, but, uh, but it's just that it's perfect. It's just at the perfect point of maturity. God dwelleth in us, his love is perfected in us. His presence of the Holy Spirit generated love is evidence of our salvation. Hereby know we, that's that word epigenosko in the Greek, and it means experiential knowledge. This is how we come to an experiential knowledge 
that we are in fact in him. The presence of the character of Christ, those gifts of the Holy Spirit, is proof that we're actually in fact born again and residing in him. And hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and him in God. This is how we know it, see? God's love in and through us gives us assurance of our own salvation. And we have known past perfect, knew it in the past and still know it today. We have known. We came to the understanding that Christ has saved us and that understanding has stayed with us past perfect, uh, past perfect continuous. Have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. The more we allow his love to flow through us, the bolder we become. Herein is our love made perfect, John writes, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. I don't know if you ever thought about it. Uh, we, we often pray, Lord, give me more courage to witness. Lord, give, give me the words to say so I might share the gospel with someone. Lord, help me this or help me that as I attempt to share, share Christ with someone else. But we're praying. That's not a bad prayer, by the way. I, I do that all the time. I have to do it in order to be able to say anything. But, but what we should really focus on is loving that person. Because if you love them enough, if your love in your heart is flowing through to them, and God's love is flowing through to them, you will love them enough to even embarrass yourself by sharing the gospel. See, it's not a question of whether you're courageous. It's a question, do you care enough? Now, I remember driving to my mother's house one time when we owned a home about 40 miles away. It was late at night. I was a brand new Christian, and I was struggling about the idea of witnessing in the Holy Spirit, and I had this little conversation. And I looked over at this old farmhouse set way back in the field, and, and the Holy Spirit said to me, if that house was on fire, what would you do? And I thought, well, I'd go up and I'd beat on the door. And he'd say, well, there's all around you are people and their house is on fire and you're not beating on their door. And it's a question of how much do you love them? Say, how much do you love them? Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. If you're afraid, you're not loving them correctly. I think that's what he's saying. And remember, John writes, we didn't start this. We didn't begin this thing. It started before the foundation of the world. We're not saved because we love others. Your ability to love or care for or exercise patience or goodness or gentleness or kindness, those things are not the reason God saved you. God saved you in order to produce this fruit in you. We're not saved because we love others. We love others because we are saved. You have to understand what came first. The chicken or the egg. In this case, the love of God came first to us before it goes through us to others. It started with him. didn't start with us. We love him because he first loved us, John writes. That, that could be a whole Sunday school lesson right there. And this is the last one he writes in this chapter. And actually, we move away from the subject of love. He spent the better part of four chapters talking about this stuff. Be not deceived, he said. Love is not optional for us. We don't have a choice if you're saved. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he possibly love God whom he hath not seen? And this is the commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God 
love his brother also. This is our assignment, Jesus said. This is our homework. Father, thank you for this time together and this opportunity to share your word. Thank you for John taking the time to pen these words down. Thank you, Lord, for breaking into our darkness and saving us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.